Has it ever occurred to you just how incredible grapes are? Now think about it. That little box of raisins your mother packed in your lunch bag was the only fruit that qualified as a dessert. And consider this. When we hear juicy gossip, we say we heard it through the grapevine. We didn't hear it through the apple tree or the berry bush. Grapes are so darn special that the grocery store expects us to snitch a few to ensure quality control. Try doing that with a banana or a pineapple. Admit it, every encounter you've ever had with grapes has been positive. That's why we created Grape Encounters, a place for adults to hang out and focus on the paramount achievement of grapedom. Delicious, irresistible wine. Wine brings people together. It starts conversations. It makes us happy. In fact, wherever there are grapes, there's gorgeous scenery, very cool people, and plenty of laughter. All that being said, let's bring out your guide for this journey. The Wizard of Wine, the Gangster of Grape, David Wilson. And it's time for your weekly grape encounter. And I am currently in one of the most interesting places, sitting with one of the most interesting people that I've ever had on the show. It's Dave Parker, and Dave is Benchmark Wine Group founder. Yes, that's right, David. How far does that go back? Well, we started Benchmark in 2002, and it was spun off of a company I started in 1998, which was Brentwood Wine Company, which was the first internet wine auction house that sold on a continual weekly basis. Why Brentwood and why Benchmark? Well, good question. When we started Brentwood, we didn't want it to sound high techy, so we didn't call it wineauction.com or anything. We happened to be on Brentwood Drive in Westland, Oregon, and if you'll recall, that was the O.J. Simpson time. And everyone knew that OJ lived in Brentwood, which was a fairly wealthy place. But we wanted to play well with Christie's and Sotheby's and that type of thing. And then Benchmark was started yeah. because we really started to focus on the benchmark wines in the industry. And we aimed to have the benchmark prices and benchmark conditions. So that single word seemed to accompany everything that we did and what, everything we strove for. So tell me everything that you do here. It's a complicated business. Untangle it for me. Okay. Well, the goal here is to make available perfectly aged wine for those people that don't otherwise have a wine cellar or don't have what they want in their wine cellar. So to do that, we have to source product from mainly private collectors. We're the largest buyer of private wine cellars in the country, also rare wine brokers in Europe. Otherwise, there's very, very little stock of this in the United States normally, unless you personally have been storing it for 20 or 30 years. And the flavor enhancements that aging wine develop are phenomenal. A well-aged bottle of good wine is a beverage quite different from the kind of wine you'd normally get in your supermarket. We wanted to make sure that was available to people. So one of the reasons I'm sitting here talking to you is I talked on the air a week or so ago about the friends I was helping who have a really substantial wine cellar and really the biggest and best names are the best in that cellar. But some of that wine's getting over the top now. And I know that because I opened a few bottles and I had my suspicion that they might not be pristine anymore. Now, I'm sure that 95% of what's in that cellar is, but it's such a scary idea to have bottles of wine that could be 250, 500, 1,000. I mean, how high does it go these days? There are $20,000 bottles of wine out there. We've sold some larger bottles that are in the $50,000 a bottle range. 
So how in the world does somebody who, I mean, you have tools and knowledge that most collectors probably don't have. How does somebody assess their seller and decide whether or not they're looking at a problem because a wine is almost past its prime? Yeah. So you can inspect your own bottles of wine. First, you should make sure you've stored it properly, temperature controlled, and make sure it doesn't get too dry either over a period of time, bottles stored on their side. But you can take a bottle of wine, examine it, look to see if the cork is bulging out or sucked in, look to see if there's a little sign of seepage, take a light and light it. If it's a red wine, you should get this sort of heart of ruby red, even if there's a little bit of browning around the edges. Mm-hmm. And look at the fill. The fill is still up into the neck. Put thumbprint pressure on the cork and make sure it doesn't scooch down into the bottle or squishy. If all of those things are true, then you probably have a very good chance of having a great experience. You know, also, if all your wines have been stored together over time, if you're encountering occasionally a bad bottle, that's not a good sign. But usually, if you've been storing it well, climate controlled, important the temperature doesn't change much, and of course, well below 60, probably have a very good chance, even if the bottle's 40, 50 years old, of it being good. So how do you know? You've got a warehouse with a whole lot of wine in it. It's scary how much wine you guys store. How do you know what the aging potential of each of these bottles is. Do you have any idea about how many different SKUs you would have here? We have about 12,000 SKUs here. You do? And then we have okay. about another 3,000 that are either on their way or are readily available to so, us. So that's interesting to me because 12,000 sounds like a big number, but in relationship to the kind of volume that you deal with worldwide, it's not really that big a number. So uh, that tells me, I think, that the wines that you're going to find in cellars is a much smaller universe than just the wine universe as a whole. Well, well, we know that anyway, but I'm just saying, but it's a much smaller universe, right? Yeah. Well, there are, there are perhaps 200,000 SKUs that regularly are considered collectible that are still in good shape and so forth. And by SKU, I mean different vintages of the same wine, even right. different bottle sizes. But at any given time, so few of them are available that although we have the largest, broadest inventory in the country, at any given time, we only have those 12,000 in stock. So I say our inventory is 200,000 SKUs, only 12,000 of which happen to be in stock right now. Our our inventory is constantly changing. So we bring new wines in. Of course, if it comes from sellers, there may only be a handful of bottles of any given wine, and those may sell out very, very quickly. So it's a constantly changing selection that we make available to people. They find that fascinating too. Tell me what you lust after. Oh, (laughs) there's a Ridge Isley... 1971, one of the wines that most recently brought tears to my eyes. 1990 Latash is fantastic. And I just got to taste the oldest wine still in a barrel in the world. What's that? It's a 1728 Sherry in the Gonzalez Bias cellars. And it brought tears to my eyes. Still not just drinkable, exquisite. So, What, What size barrel, just out of curiosity, would that be in? It was in a what you would think of as a standard size wine barrel. Okay. It was only about a quarter full because they weren't filling it with more recent vintages, which quite often they do there. But the, it's the sugar and the alcohol that keeps it pristine? Yes. And the fact it's a sherry, so oh, it's, it's already oxygen, been oxidized. It's yeah. been oxidized, so that stabilizes it. And there was a little bit of tannin in it, even though they tried to use neutral barrel. 
barrels, being in that barrel for that many centuries had brought a little bit of wood tan and that acted as a preservative also. So what about Madeiras? Yep. Because Madeiras are so interesting to me. I remember before the bicentennial, the year 2000, I was on the island of Madeira. And I was able to buy some Madeiras that were a couple hundred years old. And I was very popular on New Year's Eve, by the way, because I had these. They weren't that expensive at the time. Now I look at them and they're very, very pricey. Are these in your inventory? Yes, we have Madeiras back to about 1924. Historically, Brentwood, my first company, would sell three bottles of 1795 every year. There were six that were made available for the U.S. market, and we got three of them. 1795. So that makes me wonder whether they're lying in Madeira because they seem to have some Madeiras that were ridiculously old. I mean, hundreds. Yes. So until recently, there was a substantial stock of very old Madeiras lying on the island, uh, either in barrel or in in large glass uh, bottles. And then they've been, over time, they've been bottled and sold, a lot of them to the U.S. market. So they're very popular. They're still around. They're still in very good shape due to the high acid, some cases high sugar, but the same thing, the uh, oxidative stabilization. So we're going to have to take a break. But before we do, I want to ask you one quick question about Madeiras, because they told me that they harvest the grapes up in the hills, and then they take the juice, and they would put them in giant, essentially, boda bags. They were like a whole sheep that held a whole lot of juice and they would kind of strap it around their shoulder and then haul it down to the winery below. This is the story that they told me. The thing is, is that when I tasted that wine, I could taste a sort of a skin kind of a flavor, a sheepskin. Is that the true story? I can absolutely believe the story of the skins because there's all kinds of different things. People have used wicker baskets and so forth to carry the grapes down. Can you taste it? Maybe. The other thing that I heard, but I do have to break now, is that sometimes the workers who were hauling the juice down would help themselves to the juice in the boda bag, and then they would have to top it off with water so that they wouldn't get caught. Uh-huh. So there's some very interesting stories about stuff that happened before our grandparents and great-grandparents were even born. We're talking to David Parker, and we are at Benchmark Wine Group in, this is Napa, right? Yes, we're at Napa proper. And if you are a true wine enthusiast, this is where you want to go to die. Or maybe you want to go to live it up. I think maybe that's the thing. We're going to be back with more from Benchmark in just a second. Stay with me. You're listening to Grape Encounters with David Wilson. We offer something for everyone. Unfortunately, we're not allowed to offer free wine. That's what your friends are for. At MM Organics, we're surrounded by health nuts. That's because we're obsessed with lowering blood pressure, cholesterol, and the risk of cancer. We want to make weight loss easier and help you strengthen everything from your heart to your teeth, nails, and hair. Full disclosure. Those health nuts are actually dry-farmed heirloom certified organic raw walnuts. Rich with essential vitamins and nutrients, they're vastly superior to other nuts. Imagine, walnuts can actually lower stress and boost your brain power. No wonder MM Organics customers are so darn smart. MMOrganics.com is where you'll find our uniquely irresistible raw walnuts, walnut butter, oil and flour, sprouted flavored walnuts, and decadent fair trade chocolate covered walnuts, which pair beautifully with our legendary two-horse port style wine. MMOrganics.com 
eating any other nuts is just plain nuts. And this edition of Grape Encounters is brought to you by Total Wine and More. One of the absolute best ways I'm able to discover the latest and greatest Cabernet, Chardonnay, or artisan spirit is to go exploring at Total Wine and More. A whole lot more. Like the smile of an expert eager to help you find a new favorite. And the confidence of knowing there's something special everywhere you look. Plus, the freedom to discover a mind-blowing selection at totally low prices online at TotalWine.com. Where you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Please drink responsibly. Be 21. Well, this is my idea of a little bit of heaven. I'm at Benchmark Wine Group, and I'm with David Parker. He is the founder of this business. He's been running this business now for a pretty long time. Well, actually, you evolved from another business. So how many years now is Benchmark? Yeah, Benchmark's been going for 22 years, and it, it spun off of a company, Brentwood, which is alive and well and now operating in Washington, D.C., which started four years earlier. Why D.C.? Because D.C. has similar licensing availability to California. Uh, those are the only two places in the country where you can essentially bring wine into a state from almost any source, including private collections or importing, and sell it directly to consumers as well as to restaurants and retail shops. Okay, so I want to ask you about the red tape for a second, because I don't think that the average consumer really understands how much red tape there really is when wine is concerned or alcohol in general, I guess I should say. I just sold recently my wine shop. And what I had to go through just to transfer the license was crazy. And now you're bringing in wine from all over the place and you're buying it from private collectors. What's uh, Explain the complications because there's got to be tax complications there, import complications. I, I don't think I would even want to take it on. Yeah, you're right. It's very, very complicated. I think one thing for people to know is it's illegal for a private person to buy alcohol from another private party. So in, in terms right. of... Right, yeah. It's, you need to have the correct licensing, which is generally a distribution or wholesale license. That's the same license you need to bring wine into a state from outside the state from any source. So that's that requirement. Now, a normal distributor can only sell to a retailer or a restaurant, and then a retailer or a restaurant can sell to a consumer. So that's the so-called three-tier system. And most states have a very rigid three-tier system where you can't hold a distribution and a retail license. California is an exception, and D.C. has a, a similar capability. But you're right, the bureaucracy in selling wine or alcohol in general is probably far more complicated than almost any other product. So here's what I don't get. If I if I have a, a really fine bottle of wine, I purchased it, I paid sales tax on it, right? Right. So now when I sell it to you, I don't have a license. So how are you able to buy it from me? And what happens with the tax? Because now it becomes a wholesale item. So you can sell it to Benchmark because Benchmark holds a distribution license. Okay. Benchmark then does all the work it needs to do to pay the gallonage or excise tax to the state, which gets paid when alcohol is brought into the state. 
And then, of course, sales tax is due if the if the product is sold inside the state for consumption in the state, and we have to collect that also and remit that also. So the state's not going to refund the tax that I paid on the bottle of wine. No, they aren't. No, no they they're aren't. just going to go ahead and just going to go ahead and keep that one too. Yes, they do a little double dipping, David. Yes, I've noticed that too. What's going to happen with the three tier system? I I love reading stories. I don't know if you know Tom Wark. Tom Tom is my executive director for the National Association of Wine Retailers, which I head up. I'm the president of that organization. of course. Yeah. I love Tom. I haven't had him on the show in a long time, but boy, he's a barracuda. Oh, yeah, he is. That guy. And he doesn't mince words. (laughs) No, he does not. He's perfect for going up against legislative uh, uh, impediments to interstate shipping. So just to explain to consumers and listeners, I should say, there's a huge effort afoot to get rid of the three-tier system. Well, so that to moderate the three-tier okay, system okay, okay, that's would, fair be, would be a fair way to fair say enough. it. Because the three-tier system holds a very important role in terms of distributing large quantities of wine from the producers to into to those smaller outfits that then would sell it. So going to a smaller restaurant chain or going to a smaller a supermarket chain, high quantity wines, the three-tier system is appropriate or it's not appropriate are for rare wines, for wines in tiny quantities where the producer knows he wants to get the wine directly into the hands of collectors or very top restaurants, doesn't need a third tier in, in place, and yet the distributors hold on very tight to all control of all things, even though in a lot of cases it's not to their financial advantage. Well, I mean, there, there are lots and lots of reasons why people hate the three-tier system, though, as well. That's it. And one of those is the winemakers themselves who may be making just a small quantity of wine, and so it's not enough for the distributor to take on, and so they're sitting there and they've got to sell it themselves, and they don't have a level playing field with larger winemakers. And the distributors can ultimately decide what wines are going to be sold in a particular region. That's right. And they use their size to try to control the market. They try to keep those small distributors that may be trying to bring those smaller production products to market. They try to keep them out of the supermarkets and restaurants, which is a dramatically anti-competitive move. They're being uh, taken to court right now under antitrust law. And it's, in my opinion, it's for no good reason. It's control for control's sake, not control for proper management and effective efficiency's sake. The small wineries can, in fact, now sell right to consumers, which is good. And importers can also get distribution licenses, which is good. Um, but it's it's going to be a long, hard-fought battle to try to keep this from becoming a, a duopoly for wine distribution. And you know what's really super sad is that you go into certain states, lots of states, I should say, and you, you search for wine, and your selection is incredibly terrible, especially states that have state-run stores, which to me is just incredibly ridiculous that the government would essentially be in the wine sales business. And then there's all these other ridiculous rules that they... I'm getting political here. 
But, you know, what, what part of this is going to get reformed eventually, do you think? Well, that's, that's exactly the direction it's going to be reformed from, is from the consumer side. Consumers in many states, as you point out, have a dramatically poor set of choices, those dictated by the maybe the two or three big distributors that operate in that yeah. state. And in some cases, they have one-tenth the selection that somebody in a different state with, like California, with a little bit more liberal a, a program. So it's it's purely one of consumer choice and consumer demand. And it's really the voice of the people talking to their legislators at the state level, which is where those laws but are But how made. can you know what you want if you've never tasted what you want? Well, that's right. That's how you've got to educate yourself. Maybe you have to get out of the state or work directly with a winery that will ship to you. And then a lot of wines can be purchased online. Yes, of course. We're going to have to take a break right now, and we'll come back. We are at Benchmark Wine Group, and a privilege to talk to David Parker. Your brother is Robert Parker, is that correct? No relation. You get that all the time, though, right? I get that all the time. No relation. <laughs> Would there be any benefit to saying yes? Yes. Okay, so that just tells us a lot about your character. That's fantastic. We'll be back with more Grape Encounters right Right after this. Smoke from increasing wildfires is tainting wine grapes, and vineyard executives are looking for new ways to adapt. Pure Fresh Wines O3 technology helps vineyards overcome the problems caused by wildfire smoke by treating grapes pre-crush to improve fermentation and overall wine quality, as well as removing smoke taint. For the typical winery, saving a full harvest of grapes with pure fresh wine costs only 10 cents per bottle. O3 technology has been approved by the FDA and USDA. It leaves no residue and uses no chemicals. It provides many benefits to wineries, including the removal of sulfur, pesticides, and fungicides pre-crush, the reduction of bad bacteria and mold issues, an improvement in roundness and fruit-forward palate notes, and so much more. Most importantly, it safely and naturally breaks down smoke taint molecules to save grapes from damage. Rescue your harvest from smoke taint. Visit purefreshwine.com today. When you discover a new favorite bottle of Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or artisan spirit at Total Wine & More, you'll discover a whole lot more. Like the friendly smile of an expert guide, ready to help you find that perfect bottle. And the confidence of knowing you just found something really special. Explore the wondrous selection and totally low prices at TotalWine.com, where you'll find what you love and love what you find. Please drink responsibly. Be 21. This edition of Grape Encounters is brought to you by Total Wine & More. When you discover a new favorite bottle of Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or craft spirit at Total Wine & More, you'll discover a whole lot more. Like the confidence of knowing you just found something really special. So explore the wondrous selection at TotalWine.com, where you'll find what you love and love what you find. Please drink responsibly. Be 21. We're back with Grape Encounters Radio. One of the questions that I get all the time from people is, why is one bottle of wine $20, another one is $100, and another one is $1,000? And what really is the difference? And is a $1,000 bottle of wine 10 times better than a $100 bottle of wine and so on? I got the person who can answer that question here. It's David Parker of Benchmark Wine Group. I'm sitting in his conference room right now, surrounded by amazing wines. Hey, what's the 
most expensive wine in this room, do you think? I haven't looked at the list, but I would guess uh, two or three hundred dollars. These are cheapies. These are good for browsing if somebody's here and wants to just get something to take to dinner that night. Yeah. But you saw the warehouse with a different level of wine. So the warehouse is just a massive, massive place, and you keep really close tab on the inventory. Here's what I think listeners would love to understand. They hear terms like first growth as an example, and it's a term that doesn't, I think, mean what people think it means. Explain some of these things that people hear all the time, Grand Cru, first growth. Why is it that there are groups of wineries, winemakers, makers that get to cash in on wine at, you know, 10 times or 100 times what their neighbor is selling their wine for. It's like living right outside the gated community in a certain way, right? So, yes. Now, various plots of land, even if they're within feet of each other, can have dramatically sure. different soil profiles below the soil. Yes, I Dramatically different attitudes to the sun. But usually the difference is a long history of incredible care. Yeah in both the farming and the production of the wine, which goes into a brand that has, over the test of time, proven itself to be great aging and consistently of the very, very highest quality. So it represents an unbroken history of greatness and therefore a dedication to the very highest standards throughout the operation. And you can taste that. Is it worth 10 times as much? You know, is a Picasso worth a thousand times as much? much as a painting by a lesser artist that's in the eye of the beholder. But certainly, having been able to taste some of the greatest wines in the world, I can tell you there's a qualitative difference, and the great wines deserve that title. To your question about first growth versus Grand Cru, Bordeaux's were divided back in the 1800s based on price, and that stood the test of time. Of course, if you're getting the highest price, you've got the money to maintain those high standards. The Grand Cru program which is more burgundy, has to do with the land itself. The land is so variable. Certain plots, again, in the 1800s were identified as the very best, and they're still the very best in this premier crew, which is one step down. And then certain villages have a history of greatness, and so that's the qualitative levels in burgundy. So when did they form these formal groups, and has anybody been admitted into that group since they did that? Well, yeah. So 1855 was when the Bordeaux Gross, and that's the left bank, were founded. A few of them were brought in a year later in 1856. And then famously, Mouton, Rothschild, which was a second growth in the 70s, 72, I believe, was elevated by the French government, who may may not have even had that power, to a first growth. And the right bank, which is the area around Saint-Emilion and Palmerol, had a class A, class B, and were only originally two class A's, but uh, three more were just brought in a few years ago by act of the French government. Who are some of the wines out there, or you can maybe answer this in a generalized way, that are knocking your socks off, which I think is a technical wine term, that are not quite being noticed the way they should be? Well, it's said that all roads lead to Burgundy, and Burgundy prices have gone up the most recently by far, and they're incredible wines especially when they age, worth every bit you know, of what you pay. But in my opinion, the wines from the Piedmont area, made from the Nebbiolo grape, those would be Barolos and Barbaresco's primarily, 
can age to become just as complex. And then the wines from the Rioja and Ribera del Duero areas, which are primarily Tempranillo, can do the same thing. So those are kind of my go-to wines. Those three varietals have a lot in common genetically, and you get it in that extra level of complexity. But there are wines from all over the world that can knock your socks off. Or as Robert Mandavi said, some of them don't so much knock your socks off as sneak them off gently. <laughs> well, we were talking before we went on the air about the area that I'm living in now, Abruzzo. And I'm just fascinated by, and I should say saddened at the same time, by the incredible quality of wine that is being made there and being sold for, it's really pennies on the dollar. It really is. It's sad to me because there are simple things that regions like that, I think, can do to get themselves on the map, but they really don't get noticed. Do you agree? I absolutely agree. Having just traveled to Europe a few times, there are tremendous numbers of those undiscovered areas and that they have a, a long history of wine production for local consumption, which all of Europe is really true of all of Europe. And yet Americans have not recognized them. They're getting some support from the EU now. There are uh, consortiums. I'm involved with several of the consortiums from the Barolo Barbaresco to the one in Sicily to the one in, in Jerez or Sherry region. And I'm about to travel down to Sicily and go around with their consortium. So those consortiums are trying to educate the producers. Those consortiums are trying to build the regional yeah. brands. And those consortiums are also attracting importers like me to come out, learn about their wines, and potentially pick up some of the wines to bring back to the U.S. market. Due to the three-tier system, however, a bottle of wine and transport costs, a bottle of wine that may be bought for a euro or two in Europe has got to go up almost by a factor of 10 to be a 15 to $20 wine in the U.S. market because of all those levels of markup and all those costs, which of course are going up as energy costs go up so much. Okay, so let's talk about your warehouse for a second. I'm curious in terms of percentages, how much wine in this building is American and maybe California would be a better thing to say? Spain, Italy, France, let's say Australia, and then I don't know how much collectible wine you have from South America. Break it down for me, uh, just kind of, sort of. Sure, sure. I would say close to 50% of the bottles that you saw in the warehouse are from California. Really? Yes, and we have a significant amount of wine and some extraordinarily good wine being made in Oregon and Washington also. Good. And I would say about 38%, so between 35 and 40% of that wine is from France. So that's everything from Champagne to Burgundy to Bordeaux to Rhones to the other parts of France. Next would be Italy at 5 or 6%, although I think it should be higher because qualitatively Italy is moving up the scale very quickly. And, and, and the largest producer of wine. They are the largest producer of wine, but a lot of that wine is the high volume wine that you, or the unknown wines that you were talking about. Before. And by the way, they drink a lot of that wine. I can tell you. It, they surely do. I, they, you have no idea how much wine is consumed in Italy until you live there. It's really funny because you go into the cafes there. They call them cafes, but they're bars in the afternoon and evening. Mm -hmm. But in the morning, they're making, you know, cappuccinos, espressos and that sort of thing. But the old men, the old Italian men come in in the morning and they have white wine. That's what they sit there and drink. 
Well, it's a part of their lifestyle. It's been that way for hundreds of years. Finish answering the question. We have a lot of good wines from Spain. That's fourth. A lot more to be discovered than the rest from all over the world. Very little from Australia. These days we have some, although they were highly regarded a number of years ago, they didn't demonstrate the ability to age well. And collectors, with the exception of a few producers, of course, like Penfolds, which ages incredibly well. It seems very strange to me that, you know, Penfolds demonstrates the level of uh, quality that they can achieve. And yet I don't see a lot of serious competition, you know, not like we have in California. Yeah. You've got Henschke, which does a very good job. Yeah. And a number of others, smaller, smaller producers and, and some very good producers that no one's ever heard of, like Brown Brothers. But the American palate, I think, has moved beyond big, heavy, low acid Shiraz or Shirazes, as the Australians would call it. I think Americans are now recognizing a need for a little bit more balance in their wine. So there's been an old adage that Americans talk dry and drink sweet. <laughs> I hadn't heard that one, but I can. I think they like a little bit of sweetness. They in like their that wine. fruit forwardness fruit in the wine. Right, fruit sweetness, not necessarily sugar sweetness. So, but based on your last comment, that seems to be changing a little bit. I think it is. I think the average American is becoming more sophisticated. Certainly we're seeing the millennials experiment a lot. And they aren't listening to the reviewers. They're listening to each other. And the number of new interesting wines that I'm seeing hit the wine list of some of the top restaurants in the country That's is such amazing. a good topic. And I'd, I'd like to continue. So let's pick that up when we come back after the commercials. We're talking to David Parker at Benchmark Wine Group. Uh, we're in the middle of Napa. I don't know if it's the middle of Napa, but we're in Napa. We're in the south side. The south side of Napa. That's the rough part of town. <laughs> no, it's not. Anyway, we'll be back here from Benchmark in just a moment. Something amazing happened to me the other day at Total Wine and More. I found my new favorite Cabernet Sauvignon at a totally low price. As soon as I picked it up, it felt like, aha, I knew it was the one. So go explore their wondrous selection and you'll feel it too. Because at Total Wine and More, you'll find what you love and love what you find. Download the Total Wine app or visit TotalWine.com. But please drink responsibly. Be 21. Okay, so the other night I decided before I went to bed, I was gonna go down to the hotel pool and there were a bunch of 20-somethings down there. And we were just talking about millennials just briefly with David Parker here at Benchmark Wine Group. But anyway, we're kind of sitting around and by the way, they're drinking White Claw. It's a thing, okay? I don't like it and I don't have to. But anyway, I got to talking to these youngsters, early 20-somethings. That's Gen X, I guess, really, isn't it? Do I have that right? Yeah, I don't know where the cutoff is, but I think the difference is if you remember September 11th, 2001. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, let's just say yeah. that I was sitting there with 20-somethings, okay? Yeah, yeah. 
And they were kind of dissing wine. Like, it's not their thing. And I see two different things that go on with the younger crowd. Either they just seem to not be drinking wine at all, or they're very mesmerized by geeky wines. And when I say geeky wines, I'm talking about varietals that people haven't heard of. You know, not the same old nine wines that pretty much all of us could list as the most popular wines in America. David, what are your thoughts about this? Because it was just a few years ago that all the wine trades were talking about how the industry was just going to explode because of the young population. And it doesn't seem to be happening. Well, so we do, we watch the millennial generation. And I believe the last year that millennials were born was about 1996. So the youngest millennials now are maybe 25 years old. Okay. So the next generation, Gen Z, is just moving into drinking age. The millennials have a higher per capita rate of wine consumption than the Gen Xers, which are the generation in between them and the baby boomers. And they're a larger group. So it's a very interesting demographic for wine. But you're right. They drink unusual things. As I said before, they want to try something new and they want to find out what their friends like. And two of the types of wine that are new on the market that they really are into. First one's called orange wine, which is essentially any white wine varietal that you leave on the skins for a while. Usually white wine, you take the skins off immediately. But if you leave it there, some wines will actually get an orangey color, but whether they do or not, that category of long skin contact white wine is called orange wine. And it's very interesting in terms of the fruit flavors, the concentration. You get some unusual flavors that you're not used to in a white wine too. And then more more interesting and more controversial are the so-called natural wines. No sulfur, no fining, so they tend to be cloudy. They tend to be unstable in that bottles can blow up, which may be exciting if, if you like yeah, that sort it of is, thing. Yeah. And their natural yeast is another aspect of it. So it's just like in the old days, you crush the grapes with your feet, you leave it alone, and then you drink it, right? There can be some very good natural wines, but among all the people that I've talked to, it's very hit or miss. Just because it's a natural wine doesn't mean you're going to like it. Okay, we don't have a lot of time left, David, so here's what I want to ask you now. If I decide that I want to become a collector, how do you go about it? I think it's obvious probably they're not going to start out buying $1,000 bottles, but where do you begin? Where do you get guidance? How do you protect yourself from making big mistakes? Yeah, that's a very good question. So I think the most important thing is to develop a good relationship with a good reseller. Find a good wine shop that you can develop a personal relationship with somebody there, whether it's a salesman, whether it's the owner, and then start to talk about your interests in terms of what you might like in terms of everyday wine and your interest in starting to build a seller that will age properly. What he or she will probably do is point you in the direction of wines of roughly the type that you say you like that are up a couple notches. So don't swallow hard when the kind of wine you like and spend $20 on, he or she points you to a $100 wine. Maybe even break that cork open and taste it so you know what that wine tastes like young and why it's of a higher quality than the wine that you're used to drinking. Put a few of those bottles away. There are some very good wines in the $100 range that have a very long history of aging. Put those away. Start small. Enjoy your collection, which means even if it's not as old as you want it to be, bring a bottle out for a special occasion with your friends or whatever. Continue to watch your wines develop and get better, and you'll start to develop the mindset of, in general, here are the kinds of wines that age well. Here's roughly what I should be paying for them. And here's why I want to age them, because I want them to taste more like this thing with the secondary characteristics 
not just the primary fruit, but the smooth silkiness and complex characteristics that a wine gets as it And ages. if you only like Burgundy wine, let's say, it's okay, right, to just have a cellar full of Burgundy? Absolutely it is. But if you like Burgundy, you really ought to be tasting Oregon Pinot Noirs <laughs> and, and how well they age. And you really ought to be tasting Coteau Champenois, which are still wines from the Champagne region, which have the same varietals as Burgundy, but cost less money and quality is going up in a hurry. You should be trying Pinot Noir from the south part of the UK. Did you even know that they grow Pinot Noir? No, in the south? absolutely no idea. Yes. Just like under the Romans, the southern part of the UK is now uh. a big vineyard and great sparkling wines great Pinot Noirs, great Chardonnays, great Rieslings. So these will all be things you'll learn. And the wine industry is constantly evolving and the overall quality is constantly going up. It's a whole adventure in, in starting collecting these days. You mentioned Oregon. I started going to Oregon 20 years ago. And one of the things that really baffled me was that there was a dominance of Pinot there, but very little Chardonnay. And most places where they're growing Pinot, they're growing Chardonnay and they're family members. And I would say to winemakers, in Oregon. How come you guys aren't planting Chardonnay here? Well, I don't know. We, we do Pinot here. And then all of a sudden here about like in the last 10 years and even five years, you're starting to see these Chardonnays show up from Oregon. I'm going to tell you, David, those are some of the best Chardonnays I've ever tasted. Yep. What do you think? Well, Dominique Lafon would agree with you. He said that the Chardonnay from the Willamette Valley in Oregon yes. is the best in the new world. And I would agree with him. We just recently poured Chardonnay from a particular producer called Double Zero alongside Coche Dorie, which is the most expensive Chardonnay in the world. And the similarities were dramatic. And old-time wine collectors and wine writers were stunned. So it's happening. And climatically, Oregon has a tremendous amount in common with Burgundy. And I agree with Dominique that that's where you're going to find the best Chardonnays in the new world. And those Chardonnays are bright, crisp, very full of fruit. They're just delicious. I can recommend one. It just was so amazing. And it was from the Lang family in the Willamette Valley. Really nice people, funny people, making great, great, great wines there and try their Chardonnays. You'll be addicted to those wines. Right. And try, of course, the Pinots. Try the Rieslings from Oregon yeah. also. Then move over to Southeast Washington State and try every varietal on the planet. Hey, we're going to have to go, David. I can't thank you enough. Your knowledge is very deep and uh, I appreciate you sharing it. It's great. And um, we're going to put up a link on GrapeEncounters.com to David's business, Benchmark Wine Group. You can go over there and take a look at what they're doing. It's a great business and you know, there's an awful lot of you I think that could benefit from doing business with them. So thank you very much, sir. David, thank you very much for having me. That's going to do it for Grape Encounters today. By the way, I am still touring the West Coast by train. I said I was going to do it and I'm five weeks into doing that now. It's been fun. We'll talk to you next week, maybe from the train. following Grape Encounters on social media yet? You're not? Well, you should be. It's the best way to hear the latest, juiciest, unfiltered wine stories. It's also the single best way to keep our unpretentious, decidedly different wine conversations going strong. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Grape Encounters. For tons of content on Facebook, you'll want to join our Grape Encounters radio group page 
or if LinkedIn is more your thing, connect with me by typing Grape Encounters Radio or Grape Encounters David in the search bar. Here's the deal. The more you click, the more I'll pour.